been wanting to, to talk to you for a little while um, for very obvious reasons. You are um, engaged actively in the field. Uh, you also believe you're a producer for the Cliff and Bobo podcast as well. And all 10 of your fingers seem to be stuck deep into that big Bigfoot pie. So, you know, I, I just like to get deep into what you're doing in the field at the moment, what your theories and ideas are about the genre and, you know, the perils and pitfalls of what makes up one Bigfooting. So let's just start at the beginning. What, what dragged you into this world, this big, um, crazy, um, multicolored rainbow of, um, of assorted Bigfoot philosophies and theories? Certainly. Well, like many people, I had an experience that occurred when I was younger and it was not a visual experience. So we didn't see these things. But in short, like myself and four other friends uh, were in, I grew up in southern Appalachia in the mountains mm -hmm. of North Georgia. And uh, some friends and I were were intending to camp and had set up a camp and were essentially doing a night hike and had a very frightening experience with at least two unseen things that didn't behave like conventional animals that I knew about behaved, you know, bear, deer, et cetera, animals that you'd encounter in Southern Appalachia. And they, they didn't seem to be people. Uh, so it was frightening and harrowing. And we ended up not camping. We ran back down to our vehicles and drove back to my mom's house. I was 17 at the time. So okay. still obviously and came back for all our stuff the next day. And it was such an odd experience. I didn't really have like a perceptual framework or a uh, you know, that sort of understanding that people even claim to see such animals in other parts of the country. You know, I had a, like a peripheral awareness of the mm. idea of Bigfoot or Sasquatch. But at that time, you know, this was 1999 and I was a teenager. So it was probably still predicated on this idea of like a singular individual, you know, like Frankenstein or Dracula or something mm. like that. You know, this one individual Bigfoot that people claim to see in the mm. North. Because I just never devoted any time or thought to it. You know, I probably saw, oh, I know I saw Harry and the Hendersons when I was a kid. And that was about it, you know. Um, so I didn't really have a, a strong understanding of what had occurred. And it was so compelling. Like, friends and I would go back to this specific place at night, you know, hoping that these things would happen again. And they never did. And it was about two years later that I stumbled on Sasquatch information online, just searching, you know, all sorts of like odd things or esoterica, et cetera. And I, I definitely, I, you know, I've told this story a million times, but I remember laughing as I read Bigfoot stuff because it seems so silly and preposterous, you know, the idea of these big hairy apes, you know, kicking over people's trash cans and throwing rocks mm. at them and scaring them and, you know, ha, ha, ha. And was reading like certain testimonies that had the same sort of environmental context that we were in, where these things were displaying the same behaviors that we had experienced, which was pretty compelling. And then moreover, uh, a friend of mine that night had a, a VHSC camcorder. And so a lot of the sounds we heard were recorded. And then hearing purported vocalization recordings and would knock recordings, things of that nature. I mean, we heard those same things. And so being able to have like an a b comparison between what we'd heard and recorded and these purported sasquatch sounds wow. really like oh man maybe there's actually something to this and it wasn't as easy to dismiss so it's like the hook started to be set but again being in in north georgia 
you know, at that time, there were very there was a handful of books on the subject that you could get access to, you know, some some of the bigger publications like Krantz and Green and mm-hmm. uh, Sanderson, et cetera. None of those really focused on Southern Appalachia. There were no regional groups or organizations or collections of individual. And in fact, I, I don't even think that there were many individual researchers that had any sort of like an online presence, because by the time I really started looking into it, it would have been like late 2001, early 2002. Okay. It was still kind of the early days of the internet, but yeah. certainly there was next to nothing about the Sasquatch on the internet beyond like the BFRO's website or, you know, a couple of other of those. If you remember the old school, like Angel Fire and GeoCities, terrible yeah. sites with like, you know, dark green backgrounds and hot pink text and just yep. god awful to read, you know. Some and of those so, are still around, you know, sort of floating out there on the internet. Yeah, some of them still are. And so, you know, trying to look into those, but still not finding a lot of those connections to make. I was kind of on my own for a number of years. And the other thing that really, really set the hook is, you know, in trying to think through the problem of like, okay, well, if these are real animals, they must have always been here. They can't be recent productions into the region or something of that nature. And so uh, I, the, the first sort of layer of research that I was doing beyond trying to find other local witnesses, people who, who thought they'd seen these things or encountered mm. tracks or heard sounds, uh, I was digging into to newspaper archives and other sort of like historical repositories. And in short order, I found just from this little corner of northeastern Georgia where I grew up, I found about 37 uh, newspaper articles that predated the year 1900 that described people, you know, d- detailing people's claims of seeing mm. animals that fit this description pre-1900. Wow. So to find so many in such a short time in North Georgia, it was like that really set the hook of like, wow, this is not a modern invention. It's not just the product of the television or the radio or the Internet, for that matter. You know, it it does have a history. It's just that no one had ever mined those repositories and tried to put those together and disseminate them the way that J.W. Burns had in British Mm -hmm. Columbia and then later John Green had. And, you know, because. Those researchers I guess they were then the, long, the wrong location as well, as far as most researchers were concerned. Well, certainly. Well, there's, you know, a, a longer history in the East, uh, the Eastern, you know, part of North America. And it makes sense because it was, you know, the printed word came yeah. to the East first and it was settled first before, you know, it spread across the country. You know, obviously, indigenous, uh, you know, oral traditions, folklore, artistic representations go back much farther. But because, you know, those languages weren't externalized in a written form. You know, it's really it's hard to track that history until the written word is employed in North America. But so the the indigenous representations are much older. But we just don't know how far back those go because they're not they're not written. You know, we can we can date artistic representations like the stone head carvings from the Columbia River and various masks and totems, et cetera, that we like interpret or associate with the Sasquatch phenomenon. But but finding that amount of historical information in in the area where my experience occurred was pretty powerful. And then meeting other local witnesses, that was probably like the big, you know, I think everyone who pursues this, I'm sure you've experienced it. At some point you have like a, a transformative experience yeah, and something occurs where it's just like, I can't stop thinking about this. Like this problem really matters and I want to investigate it. And I think it was the combination of those things, seeing that there was a legitimate history that, that, no one else had had really aggregated or put together yet and then meeting other people locally who had seen these things or claimed to see these things let's say mm. was, you know and so i haven't stopped thinking about it for like 20 years <laughs> so here we are well i mean i you know i can i, I can definitely relate to that that experience 
I've never actually literally had any experience that I would call a cryptic experience in my life. But um, similarly to yourself, it's just the, the collection of sightings and encounters that are normally I suppose, separated by by class, by profession, by location. And especially when you have these um, these antagonistic witnesses, people who have no interest in the subject, but they can't unsee what they have seen. And regardless of what happens to them in their career or in their life or in their personal relationships, they can't turn around and say, no, it didn't happen. I was mistaken. And that's one of the things that's always compelled me and drawn me towards this. Now, I'm quite curious about your, your experience, actually. Was it the classic stones throwing, uh, you know, wood pops, wood knocks? noises and intimidation do you feel that you were being pushed out of the area that you were in intentionally uh i do you know if i had to to interpret motive or something of that nature that's what it felt like at the time so essentially we first heard the sounds of like two large things that seemed to be paralleling us or following us stalking us however you'd like to define it and it was at night and so this was during the summertime Eastern deciduous forest. So, you know, very near jungle thick and a lot of insect noise and things of that nature. So we we had flashlights, these little mag lights. But if you, you know, shine them into mm. the brush, you just saw a wall of marine brush. And so as we're, we're going up this night hike, essentially, we had heard about what was supposed to be an abandoned cabin on the side of this mountain that had okay. its own sort of history of spooky stories associated mm. with um, so we had camped, set up a camp at the base of this mountain. We're going to hike up and try to find this abandoned cabin and see what it was about. You know, we're teenage kids, you know. Yeah. Um, and so hearing these these large things moving, of course, at first we thought it was animals, you know, and we'd stop. And But then there were these other odd sounds. I could definitely remember, and it was captured on this recording, too, the sound of like a branch being broken and ripped, sounding oh. like it was ripped from a tree. Yeah. Bam, bam, bam. And then one of my friends on the tape says, sounds like wood being slammed together. Of course, mm. this was 1999. We didn't know anything. There was no finding Bigfoot or mysterious yeah. encounters. Like, we'd never heard of that concept. And so some of those behaviors seemed, well, that's not a bear and it's not a deer. And so we were so scared. And, of course, you know, we're, we're kids. Like, we're, I think one or two of us might have had a pocket knife. You know, like, we were just too young to have we couldn't mm. buy alcohol and so nobody was drinking anything of that and all sober-minded but in our fear we're yelling at what we think might be people because we we turn off the flashlights and it was total darkness and you could hear these things moving around but you didn't see any light coming through the trees so it was like if these are people they don't have flashlights they're maneuvering in the dark and so we were yelling things like you know we're armed we're going to shoot you <laughs> what are you doing here and of course no responses you know but we did hear whoop sounds and okay. like bellowing moaning howl sounds and then a wow. massive tree get pushed over and so it was just bizarre and frightening that's, and i mean that's a real really severe intimidation really essentially um that would have been i mean that would have sold me for sure but you know, similarly i'm not sure like yourself if i would have been aware at that time that all of those attributes were associated with Bigfoot. Um, oh, and that, that's yeah, an interesting okay. thing. Well, exactly. Yeah. And I, I think that at almost um, gives it gives more validation to that kind of experience. Like you've clearly been engaged for 20 years since in the search for, for Bigfoot. Like I said, you went back to the area and never found anything. Have you ever had any experiences that were more 
bona fide than that since. I've had a lot of those sort of sound only experiences and two experiences had a visual element, but I wouldn't call those sightings because in both instances, one was in 2007 in central North Carolina and one was in 2012 in northwestern Arkansas. You know, the, the first one was at night and it was essentially a silhouette. It was in the dark. And the second one was at night, but it was a portion of an animal through a thermal imager. So I wouldn't call either of those sightings because you know, I spent the entire time like, what am I looking at? What am I looking at? Trying to fight confirmation bias and wishful thinking because I'm like, please let it be a Sasquatch. Yeah. So I still haven't seen one despite all these years. I would really love to have that experience. I mean, obviously, I'm convinced that they do exist. I've had a number of experiences that involved rock throwing or hearing projectiles, experiencing projectiles, you know, finding mm. tracks or impressions or, you know, that, that are consistent with those that are associated with the Sasquatch phenomenon. I've heard vocalizations a number of times because I've been just so heavily involved in the field for I mean, it, I started doing field research in about 2002, interviewing witnesses, but oh, I didn't wow. get really serious until about 2004. And then by 2007, I was traveling around the country all the time for it and still do. Wow. Um, so it's it is frustrating to not have that visual confirmation. You know, I, I definitely want to have that. I envy the people that have that sort of certainty of what they've seen, you know, because I, it, it's. Envy them in one sense, man. In another sense, I I worry about having that confirmation. You know, guy looking for Bigfoot sees Bigfoot, and therefore believes he's real. And then suddenly, it's almost like you've got too much skin in the game to be objective about the evidence. And that's something I worry about. I want the experience, preferably from a distance to begin with, uh, not too up close. But at the same time, it feels to me as if those people that I know who had it can't and see what they've seen and etc are entirely sure almost excluded or excluded by the skeptics well you know you're a believer etc etc how can we trust your objective point of view what could possibly be out there scientifically speaking I mean, what are your feelings on that how do we how do we assess the evidence and the witnesses especially the anecdotal evidence and um put it in some sort of scientific um, framework that, that can be shown to people like and that can convince them of the reality of this species certainly well it's such a difficult proposition because obviously i am motivated by the testimonial claims now I, i'm hyper focused on evidence and the the analyses of physical evidence too but you know claims are, are very motivating and they do sort Absolutely. of the bedrock i mean the whole phenomenon is really made up of those two components mm. you know testimonial claims and then physical items, elements, whatever you want to call them, that are touted or interpreted as evidence mm. to support the claims. And so trying to contextualize those in a scientific manner, especially when it comes to claims, is very difficult because, you know, humans are really limited detection tools. You know, we've, we've got a host of limitations mm. and uh, interpretive schemas that vary wildly across a population. Even if you're looking into a certain area or a certain region, it's not like everyone in southern appalachia has the same interpretive schema you know mm. that they would experience something and interpret it as a biological animal versus you know certain parts of the country where like spirituality is so much more uh, like higher on the the hierarchy mm. of values and therefore everything's interpreted through that particular schema and so you know people have these interpretations and so it's easy i think for people with like i have always 
thankfully maintained like a very biologically grounded perspective, yeah. ecologically grounded perspective. So maybe in the early days, I might have been dismissive of certain claims because they were associated with the supernatural, the paranormal, mm. physical. But then, you know, understanding over time that, you know, many people interpret the natural world through a supernatural lens. And so yes. if describing something in that language, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're they're lying or misrepresenting something. It's just that's the language that it's couched in. And I think humans have shared that relationship with animals. I mean, we've shared that relationship with natural phenomena, certainly the, the environment oh, as such. But, you yeah. know, if you if you were to look into you know, I've spent a lot of time, I've been working on this book project that I hope will get done this year, but I said that in 2020 and I said that in 2021 too. So we'll see if I get it done this year. But, um, you know, these, you have this history of supernatural attributes that are projected onto the Sasquatch. Mm. And that, that's, there's a through line through uh, indigenous cultures, through early European settlers and to modern people. I mean, you still have people that sort of think in this way about these beings, creatures, animals, whatever category you want to put them in. Um, but very often they're the same exact supernatural attributes that people have historically associated with other large charismatic megafauna that are rare and intimidating. So you mm. see it with tigers and you see it with bears and you see it with gorillas and sort of like the, the pre-Western scientific history of those animals. And so it's like, well, on one hand, there is this sort of like scientific dismissal of claims because they do very often have that sort of bent. But then you could look at the history of these other animals that have the same attributes and say, well, if the Sasquatch exists, you should expect people to have these particular supernatural interpretations, mm -hmm. their behavior, their appearance, uh, their, their, their place in the environment, our place in the context with them. And here are the specific ones you should expect by looking at the histories of these other, again, like large, rare intimidating animals and they all line up completely it's definitely you know, demonstrable in other cultures and even our own culture and our, our near past that we've done that with as you say with large megafauna that's something that's interested me for a long time especially when you look into british and european history of things like the wood woes or dragons even that are largely you know, relatively speaking usually large lizards or serpents of some kind uh, winged or otherwise, and you see the way that they are, um, they're drawn or redrawn by the artists of the day, and there's a, a fox-like head and a giraffe-like neck and bat-like wings and a snake-like body, and you think this artist is utilizing known animals from, its, from his or her mental library, mm -hmm. and that's the same with witnesses. Often when they describe something, they have to reach into their mental library to pluck out details that could possibly match what they've seen. But what you normally get is a bit of a patchwork quilt of a creature because it's something that they, they haven't known before. And um, I was reminded of that when I was speaking, uh, when I was thinking of the, um, the Aztecs seeing um, Cortez ships sailing, you know, sailing towards them and, and imagining them or seeing them as floating mountains. Mm -hmm because they had nothing, but they were sort of tall and pointed, and that's the closest thing in their mental library that would match what they were looking at. I wonder with the animals that we describe, or witnesses have described, especially in the past, and even today, somehow, like you say, through people's own uh, philosophical or spiritual lens, depending on culture and personal beliefs, or through their 
just their mental library with the available species and animals that they're aware of. How much does this really affect what we're looking at and what's being given to us from these anecdotal reports? And there's a way of correlating, you know, there's little bits of um, shared details and making a composite of this of this creature. Absolutely. And, you know, there's so many of those elements that are so heavily correlated that, again, you should expect them. You should be able to predict them that they occur. And very often those are the things that are used to dismiss the idea, you know, like Mm. very often when people think about human evolution, like the evolution of, of what we are today, they only go back as far as, you know, certain ancestors, you know, people look at, let's say Australopithecus and they Mm. think about 3.2 million years of evolution or whatever. And it's like, well, we are mammals and we are primates. And so we need to look more at like, you know, 50, 60 million years of evolution. And that's kind of created what we are. And so one example that I point to often would be that, you know, our, our smallest ancestors, the little rodent sized primates that live primarily in trees, you know, they were hunted by mostly snakes, cats, and birds, all of which hunt by motion. And so the animals that remain motionless in the presence of those animals were selected for and survived. And so there's a conserved response, you know, the freezing response, mm. called, you know, tonic immobility okay. occurs very often. In, you know, it's conserved across a lot of mammalia, certainly all primates and apes. And so one of the things that you see very often that people believe about Sasquatches is that they somehow have the power to incapacitate you, you know, whether that's through some oh. people it was previously thought to be like some sort of spiritual energy or then thought to be like telepathy. And now they've couched that under the idea of infrasound because infrasound is a real natural phenomenon. Mm. They use that as like an explanatory mechanism to describe the same effect. Mm. I think that sounds more kind of sciencey. And so people couch it under that, but it's like, well, what's really occurring here is that, you know, you have this involuntary response. It's involuntary. You can't power it. And you look into the histories again of, uh, bears, tigers, and gorillas, all of which, you know, across multiple cultures and contact, mm. thought that they had the ability to incapacitate a person with their gaze, mm. that they could see you, that they could freeze you like stone, you know, something of that nature. And so that's another example of like, well, you should expect people to experience that. Yeah. Based on the histories of these other animals, you should expect people to put the onus on the animal because they don't understand yeah. that, like, no, this is a normative response within you that you're powerless to. Because again, if we're talking about millions of years of being prey animals Mm. i mean the the mechanisms that selected for that these involuntary automated mechanisms like they're way more sophisticated and selected for than your rational mind than your reasoning it's like a bypass of your brain it's a trip switch certainly exactly so we have this more this sort of newer portion of our brain you know like that creates reason thinking rationality we have you know these abstract representations of potential motor outputs on and on and on but like that's you know much less sophisticated than this older host of of Mm. biological responses neurological responses and so it's no wonder that people thought that this animal could do something to you that you were powerless against and it's those very things that very often people say oh well this witness described being paralyzed by a sasquatch at a distance hogwash throw it out and it's like no they're describing something that was experientially accurate or phenomenologically accurate they just don't understand the mechanism and so Mm. we should we should offer like more charitable takes and so we just in general like interpreting testimonies is so difficult for that reason because there's so many different factors that go into that 
And it's easy to dismiss a lot of those things when they don't necessarily align with our presuppositions. Oh, it's or, completely personal. It's completely subjective all the way. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I've noticed that with people. I'm, I'm very, I got very interested for quite a long while in the psychosocial aspects of the genre, um, especially from a religious point of view, having somebody sort of with a religious background who married somebody from a different religious background and um, observing the way, the different way that we would both interpret the same event mm-hmm. was very interesting to me because we both had a religious slant that would go in a slightly different direction, not too different, but it was very clear to me that we experienced the same thing and yet the interpretation was different. And that kind of got eh, me kind of curious for a while. Applying it to this genre, I've met people who are completely on the paranormal side who say, no, because we can't find it, it must go into a portal, it must evaporate, it must have the ability to cloak. And my view on that personally, from a sort of a flesh and blood point of view, is, well, yes, but an animal that lives in the forest knows the forest as well as you know your neighborhood and you know all the little ducks and the hides, the places where you can be out of sight. And... Um, and that's also probably why it's very difficult to track them, because I, I thought if somebody came into my house and moved one of the books, I'd come in and I'd feel something was off. Somebody's moved something in my house since it was last year. Maybe it's the same for these guys in the forest. Every leaf, every branch, every little tree with a, you know, a, a discreet camera on it with a camouflage uh, pattern stands out a mile. And, you know, we've all got these different perspectives. And I, I think that you know, when we're looking at this creature where we can't but help look at it through those those um, philosophical viewpoints, even ones that we might not practice anymore. You know, if you're Native American and you've grown up with that uh, animistic um, spiritual view where everything in the natural world is also part of the spiritual world, or, you know, you're a religious person who thinks that um, God created the world in six days and therefore these things will put you in always your or whatever the perspective you've got it changes it changes how you feel and yet within that there is still the experience you know these um, how can I put it these corresponding details that come out about the, the big floor Sasquatch and all the other different hairy humanoids around the world that, that interests me that tells me that there is something to it something more than you know, personal beliefs and philosophies and religions and outlooks. And uh, and that's what I'm, I'm curious about. Now, you might be aware that recently I wrote a, sort of a, another book about different sort of hairy, I didn't call it hominids, but humanoids to be a bit more broad around the world. And it got me thinking about the differences between some of these things. So Sasquatch, for example, or the Skunk Ape or the Yerin or the Almasti. Do you believe that we're looking at just one type of of creature uh, inhabiting these different parts of the world or do you think there might be many different subspecies uh, variants if you will oh I, I definitely don't think they're the same thing you know let's say for the sake of argument that all those things are what people say that they are you know mm. because again we don't know that any of them exist no. we, we believe we're convinced we're hopeful etc et but we don't know in terms of you know we haven't demonstrated conclusively but uh, I just think based on not only physical descriptions, but physical evidence and the way that those things differ and can be fractionated out from each other, 
size, diet, behaviors, behaviors that occur in certain contexts that, I, I mean, I, I really think that Ivan Sanderson's sort of model of there being these four different, you know, these, the, the neo-giants, you know, which is very consistent across North America, parts of uh, Eastern Asia, China, down through the Johor Peninsula of Malaysia into seemingly Australia with the Yowie, those all generally describe something of the same build, stature, proportions. It exhibits the same behaviors in the same context. Their footprints are so highly similar that they must be, if not the same species, at least within the same genus. Then you have this more man-like form, you know, the Almas, the Almasti, the Barmanu, et cetera, et cetera, where you're talking about the Hindu Kush over into Mongolia through Russia, the Caucasus, these other areas. And then, you know, I'm not necessarily super swayed or persuaded by the idea of a more quadrupedal ape-like form with a divergent hallux that, mm. that Sanderson proposed that the Yeti or these other Himalayan, uh, this ape form might be, because that, that evidence is so tenuous and there's so little of it. You know, there's the McNeely Cronin footprints and mm. then the Shipton footprints, which who knows that I think Daniel C. Taylor made a really compelling argument that those mm. are registered uh, Tibetan snow bear tracks. I think it was Tibetan snow bear, some sort of Tibetan bear. Um, mm. But at least those three, and then the the third category being the very diminutive, you know, orang pindek, you know, the the Indonesian mystery hominid hominoid that that yeah. has a smaller stature, and so I don't think those could be from the same genus, although I could be wrong. But I that's one of the things that's so fascinating is that there are these differences and that they are so consistent across. You know, when you're talking about North America, you're not just talking about, you know, indigenous people or European settlers. Like there's mm-hmm. this whole host of cultures that have, have influxed into the melting pot of North America, members of which all claim to see animals fitting this description. Mm. And it would be the same in Australia and these other places. And so I get, you know, as a as a big fan and reader of Carl Jung, you know, people very often misunderstand what an archetype is or what an archetype was intended to describe, but uh-huh. it is often applied to like images and motifs or structural motifs. So I understand people's apprehension of like the wild man archetype, um, even though usually an archetype describes a, a series of behaviors that can be patterned like, you know, mm. benevolent king or the tyrannical king or the trickster or the hero on and on and on. They're not usually describing like an imagistic motif, like a symbol, but you could, those things could be interchangeable. So I understand like the symbolic nature of the wild man. So of course there are commonalities, just like you could have the big cat archetype. Mm. Oh, well, people see the big cats and it's like, well, tigers are not lions, are not jaguars, are not leopards, are not cheetahs, on and on and on. You you can fractionate those things out and like tigers don't occur in Africa. Mm. on and on and on so you could break those things down and so i think a lot of people who are looking at the subject from that sort of uh, global bird's eye view they just see the category of wild man and that's easy to dismiss the entire proposition that there might be biological species at play by saying well this is just the the manifestation of this particular you know psychological element or this this part of the subconscious or the unconscious or you know the the wild man archetype so of course there are commonalities across those things but how interesting is it that what people claim to see in asia for an extremely long time happens to coincide with like the the fossils of this lineage of giant apes and what people claim to see in indonesia for untold passages of time happen to coincide with these smaller diminutive you know homo floresiensis and on and on now obviously we have no record of primates non-human uh, mm. well we have primates but no non-human apes in the americas yeah. 
you know, there are monkeys in South America, Central America, et cetera. But so we don't necessarily have that or the same with Australia. There's no fossils of, of apes there. But just the fact that these things seem to be predictive in nature. But, yeah, they really require sort of a microscope because on a macro mm-hmm. view, yeah, there is this wild man category that everything could sort of fit in. But again, like I would point to the big cat category. Like, of course, there's shared commonalities across. I think that's a great explanation. In my mind, it was similar to that, which was bears, essentially. Polar bear, black bear, grizzly, moon bear, sun bear, you know, on and on and on. All the way through. They are all distinctly and identifiably bears. And if you were familiar with one species, you would definitely identify another you've never seen before as a bear. Mm -hmm. And yet, they do have some, you know, incredibly divergent uh, physiological differences and especially in behavior and habitat as well, which is one of the things I try to point out about okay, the wild man phenomenon uh, worldwide to some people and just say, well, look, you know, um, even with the alleged sightings here in the UK, you would expect these animals to be adapted to this environment, to not have the habitat that the um, requirements of the North American Sasquatch, the one we're most familiar with. And yeah, I think really, that's, you know, that's um, that's just something we're, we're stuck on that. And that's a lot to do, I suppose, with the primacy of American culture, where this particular uh, genre is most popular, one would say, seems to, to dominate all things. Well, it's it's definitely interesting to me. One of the arguments that people make for the archetype, because, you know, the, the proposition is like, this phenomenon exists constituted mm. of the body of claims and the physical items associated mm. with the claims touted as evidence, right? And so what's what's generating that? Well, there's either an animal that fits the descriptions in the claims and has feet shaped like the tracks associated with the claims, mm. or in lieu of that, it has to all be the production of the human mind, you know, because bears and elk and moose don't leave tracks like that. And mm. most reasonable people wouldn't see a deer and and conflate it with an eight and a half foot tall ape, you know, on two legs. And so you're trying to get to the bottom of that, you know, it's like biological animal production of the human mind. And so obviously the skeptical position would be that it's all the production of the human mind. Mm -hmm. And that could be two forms. It involuntary, something like an archetype that manifests itself. That's part of our, you know, the collective unconscious part of the, basically like the, the basal operating system of every human mind. Or, you know, it's voluntary, which is fabrication, active imagination, and then offering something as true. It's probably a little bit of both going on. Yeah. But the fact is that I think people that point to the archetypal argument say, well, look at it. It's a global phenomenon, which shows and it's like, well, what's more interesting is where it's not occurring. You know, why isn't there a history of claims and evidence in the modern times in the mountains of Korea or in Fiji? Mm or in the Carpathians, or in the Alps. You know, there's plenty of forested habitat that would be viable mm. that have other analogous animals. You know, the Carpathians would be a great example with wolves and elk and brown bears and, you know, a lot of the same animals that occur in other parts of mm. Asia and America where these things are seen. And yet there's no history that's comparable in terms of an unbroken timeline of claims and then people discovering what they interpret as evidence, whether those are tracks or or capturing hearing vocalizations or seeing these things. And so you would think that if it were solely an archetype and part of this sort of collective unconscious from which such things emerge, that it should just happen wherever people occur. And it, it, yeah. it doesn't it doesn't seem to. You know, it occurs in Asia, down through Australia and North America, 
primarily, you know, and, and it, it makes sense in that regard. Now, obviously, there's African mystery hominoids, too, which no one yeah. should be surprised by because actual homin- hominoids <laughs> emerged out of Africa and, and uh, et cetera. So I find it just as compelling the places that constitute viable habitat that don't have a history of this phenomenon. To me, yeah, especially when they're next door to, to, to neighbors or have a related history to cultures that did carry it forward. You know, with the archetype of the way, I was reminded oftentimes with lots of the woodwows uh, and woodwows of carvings in Britain and Europe, this hairy, you know, large statured uh, man carrying a club of the, um, the archetype of Hercules or Heracles, you know, the Greek god, which would have been really, I mean, widespread through not only the Greek and Roman empires, but in that there's um, there's representations in the Babylonians and the Persians as well. So that really would cover a lot of ground um, in the old um, in the old world. Also for things like the, the Basajon in um, the Basque country in in Spain, they have an archetype that was very similar to Sylvanus, the shepherd god, and um, you know, and so on and so forth. So I can see. Perhaps that's where we might have got some of our representations from, and you know, in our noble tapestries from the 12th century and our cathedrals that still exist today. You can go around and visit them, and there they are, some with conical heads, even you know, constructed in the 12th century um, before we really had any proper knowledge of apes. You think, wow, well, that's that's kind of curious. That's a very interesting feature, uh, and yet, you know, I, I still fall back to that that little um, get out of jail free card and say, well, yeah, but there's that club again. There's old Hercules, you know, making his appearance. And um, could we have perhaps either based um, or attributed the attributes to the, the hero Hercules to these wild men types we were, we were experiencing in the natural environment? Or is he the source of them? You know, and that's that's a curious thing to me. And then I wonder about the colonial outreach into the Americas. So even with things like the Pakwaji, for example, and some other sort of um, North American little people or imp type uh, creatures, there's a real, I mean, and in, also in South America, there's a real, with the Duende, there is a real correlation with some of the European myths of Park and the Puka and all of these different things. And, and, and the Duendes, I wonder, was this first taken to them when we invaded them in the old times and then sort of inculcated in their cultures and fed back to us somehow at a later date? Maybe unknowingly, you know, that it was brought into their culture. It was a way of relating whatever mysteries you had to the European colonizer. And then, you know, um, like the like the pizza effect pushed back out the other side and and uh, given his um, you know sacred writ as um, ancient history and that's that's the kind of stuff that keeps me up at night man <laughs> certainly and all of those are you know fascinating things you have to contend with those things to to treat those subjects wow. seriously and so it's to me it's definitely the case that even if the biological animal exists, these other mm-hmm. things are occurring. It's not like an either-or proposition. No. Because, like there are this like this socio-psychological phenomenon occurring too. There are you know these involuntary sort of uh, responses that might be interpreted as related to the Sasquatch, and then there are voluntary fabrications and imaginations. You know, mm-hmm. pathological, wishful thinking, et cetera, et cetera. And so the question to me is not just a 
it's it's one nested inside of the other in all likelihood. But the real core of the question is like, is there an external like empirical referent? Is there yeah. really this biological animal that's at the basis of all of this? And so, I mean, I'm fascinated by you know, we're talking about the the Europeans making their way to North America, because, again, we can date the oldest occurrences of like artistic representations mm. of apes. You know, there's no question, I think, uh, among most of the people that have investigated that stuff, that they do represent some sort of hominoid. Now, the question mm. is, is it supposed to be an exaggerated human or, you know, a human with these distorted features? Or is this really based on apes where in North America they should not have had any apes to observe mm. to base these observations on? So, again, that's an interpretive game and it's, it's a bottomless pit because we're still debating these things all these years later. But I just find it fascinating that. You know, when you read a lot of the first written accounts, again, when the when the written word comes to North America and mm. explorers, uh, you know, early scientists, people trying to describe plant and animal species, maybe let's say early what we would call like ethnographers were. Mm. There's always a dismissive element that, you know, the, the famous, you know, Elkina Walker text uh, with the Spokane tribe which is later, I think that's 1840s. So it's not necessarily in the 1400s or 1500s, but even he says, you know, bear with me if I trouble you with a bit of their superstitions. You know, they believe in this race of hair covered giants. And so there's always this dismissive element. I think it's a Jose, I can't remember the name. It was a 1700s explorer who did a a passage from essentially like the Bering Strait all the way down to Mm. Mexico, essentially. Jose Marcino something of that nature i'd have to pull it up i know you're talking about yeah yeah so even yeah. he describes you know these these i think people in the nootka sound there in, in vancouver island and there's always this dismissive element and what's interesting is when you read those accounts what people are describing they're not like representative characters you know like hercules is a is a representative yeah, yeah. um zeus odin etc you know it, it's a character that has sort of like a moral foundation that provides information about how to how best to act in the world in certain contexts. Very often when you read the early ethnographers accounts, what people are describing, what indigenous people are describing is, you know, living beings, like multiple beings that are associated with a place, a time and some resource, you know, like Mm. we, we avoid this particular Valley in the summer because that's when such and such is there collecting such and such food. Okay. So there's this whole environmental context. It's not just like, you know, uh, you know, we, that mountain because Odin lives there, like mm-hmm. a singular mm-hmm. figure that is ruler of thunder and lightning, whatever the case may be. You know, they're very often describing what we would interpret as as animals. Um, I wish I had this quote pulled up. I, I hadn't been thinking about it, but I found this great quote from an individual. It's probably taking too long to find it. Um, that you know, gorillas had the same associated history, and so very often the first Westerners dismissed mm-hmm. the idea of gorillas because they had. There again, some mystical or supernatural interpretations and elements. But when you look back at those those oral traditions, they were talking about animals associated with specific places in certain contexts, seasonal contexts, food contexts. So to me, the idea that I mean, obviously you had mandates that were issued that you know the the first explorers from uh, Spain and other European countries were mandated to convert people they encountered to Christianity. Yeah. So right. it's like. We're going to supplant your belief system and convert you to this Western way of thinking. All of the early references I can find where indigenous people are describing these particular animals or things that are consistent with what we would call Sasquatch are mm-hmm. always in the dismissive. And yet 
very shortly thereafter, you know, or concurrently, you know, contemporaneously, Europeans are seeing these wild men, woolly boogers in the South, you know, upon the discovery of the, the lowland gorilla, essentially yeah. Shayu in like the 1860s, then they start yeah, describing like American gorillas because yeah. they have a new nomenclature, a new name. And so it, it doesn't make sense to me that a group of people who would be so dismissive of the indigenous people would try to eradicate their way of belief and yet adopt this one particular thing and not all things. It, well, I mean, same things yeah, in the same absolutely. environment. They're using I different agree. languages for it. But I find that yeah. so compelling. And yeah, you don't I mean, even until until 1924 in the aftermath of the Ape Canyon event. Uh, a writer named, some people pronounce it Jorg, or some people pronounce it George, but it's J-O-R-G, but he was essentially a, okay. a Clallam Indian. He published a, a paper called The Real Americans, which was a, a paper for uh, Native Americans, a publication for indigenous people. And in the aftermath of the, the miners and the ape attack at what is now Ape Canyon, he basically says, what what these folks are calling apes, or what we've been calling like siatics or siatics, for all these years. So it's not until 1924 that someone says these two cultures are describing the same animals and these are real animals and here's what we know about them. And so I don't it's hard for me to see it as like the European adoption of an indigenous folkloric element and then a reinvention and refeeding it back just because there yeah. it seems to be like this parallel unbroken timeline describing the same sorts of things in the same specific places. And not describing it in the same places, you know, there's no tradition of these things in vast open plains or high deserts where there's no well, trees. It's also unlikely that the Europeans, as you say, would have taken on the legends with any seriousness of those peoples who they came to dominate. That's not that's a, not a conquering um, cultural trait that people take on. Oh, by the way, you know, why don't we adopt this into our folklore? So. I completely agree with that. But about the gorilla thing, by the way, I mean, was it Hanno, the explorer in 500 BC, who went to, I think, what is now Sierra Leone or Ghana, one of those places in West Africa, and said he encountered a tribe of hairy women? Hairy women, yeah. Right? That's yeah. Was essentially meant, you know. Yeah, you know, like these big hairy creatures. And you know, even as recently as the, the lion killers, the billy apes. Mm. Those chimps are huge, and they were ethno-known, and people were talking about them, and everybody was saying, no, 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 these are tribal stories. There are no, you know, five-foot-tall chimpanzees that live deep in the, in the jungle that can attack and kill you know, large animals that stand upright most of the time. And yet, here we are, Billy Ape, it's in the, you know, it's in the books of natural history now. Nobody even cares. And I often wondered that about cryptozoology. Is our mission essentially once completed something in which, you know, the kraken, the giant squid now is just another animal, the Bigfoot is there, you know, stuffed in the, the, the history, uh, the Museum of Natural History. And we've forgotten all about it. You know, is that is that the mission? Is, is that really what happens in life? It seems to be when we find these things. Um, and I always wonder. With that in mind, if I want to find them for that very, or at least prove it for that very reason alone. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's a wonderful thing. Um, I'm interested in, in your take on, from an anecdotal point of view, on ethno-known animals. You know, there have been so many, particularly discovered by cryptozoologists, but ethno-known creatures like the 
bullying, like your cappy and and many other things. And you know, there's a list of growing list of new animals that are discovered every single year. What what do you think the likelihood of using anecdotal correlative reports uh, and ethnonome tribal um, stories? Uh, what do you think the possibility of getting scientific classification? Uh, at least penciled in on that basis alone is, even if just for the protection of species and habitat, based upon possibility of um, of the animal's existence. Do you think that's that's something that could come about in the near future? So, well, I think ethnozoology plays a huge role, and it it probably took a long time for it to get to that. You know, mm-hmm. in in order for people to or scientists, whether we're talking about zoologists or biologists or whoever to to recognize the Mm. very real data that's contained in whether we call it folklore oral tradition whatever you know Mm. people unfortunately look at those as dismissive terms but it's like there's still databases of knowledge they just happen to be databases of like accrued experiences and observations that are accrued over time and then distilled Mm. into stories because it's a lot easier to remember a story than it is like some bullet point list of facts And so people interact with the natural world. They have experiences. They encode those into stories. And then those mm. change and get passed down over generations. And then as new experiences or observations that seem to be associated with that get incorporated into those stories. And so it's. I think it was very easy for people to look at those as just myths or just, you know, moral tales. Because mm. let's face it, like we're, we're humans, you know, our primary concern prior to, you know, modern science is like how do we act in the world so that the world doesn't get us you know so everything's a moral story it's a lesson about how to behave in a certain context mm-hmm. whether that's you know a relationship context with an emotional overtone or whether that's how to behave in in the face of you know the dragon the great unknown the the predatory creature on and on so i do think it's there are other pursuits that have now looked into the ethnozoology again i, I gotta try to find this this quote if I can find it quickly, yeah. here. because it was um, it was essentially a, a, a Canadian Ph.D. describing the history of of the um, the gorilla. And how these things were dismissed, uh, and I will probably mispronounce his name because it's, oh, that's OK. It's a. Uh, Adam Peru Hermans Amir is PhD director of multimedia for the Talton Central Government of the Talton First Nation in Northern British Columbia, Canada. Said okay. he's talking about the way that Westerners treated indigenous oral traditions about gorillas in Africa. Said quote many indigenous accounts of gorilla gorillas include magical or fairy tale aspects. Mm-hmm. The stories describe real occurrences while weaving these descriptive facts into a normative narrative akin to a fable or morality tale. This blend may have caused Western scholars aiming at scientifically accurate accounts of gorillas to be skeptical of the reliability mm. of local stories. Instead of untangling the descriptive and normative elements, they dismiss the knowledge. Yeah. And so I think you see that again, whether we're talking about the Sasquatch, but I'm sure, like we mentioned, there's that same sort of mystical interpretation of bears, tigers, gorillas, all these other animals mm. that we're really fascinated with that we accept to be real. And I, I don't know necessarily like the history of the Okapi, but you just talked about, you know, the biliate. There's still probably some of those interpretations that people are all too ready to dismiss. Like, oh, chimpanzees, they're not going to nest on the ground like that. And they don't walk habitually upright or even, you know, primarily upright on and on and on. And so it's not this is like I've used this analogy a few times 
I need to cook up a better one because it's kind of silly, I think. But you, you've you seen The Sixth Sense, right? Oh, yeah. 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 The, the movie? Yes, yes. So yeah, it's like, yeah. spoiler alert for all your listeners, if you haven't seen it, it's like 20-something uh, no. years old now, so you should have seen it. Yeah. You, know, exactly. you watch this certain film, right? And, and you're watching this movie, this, you know, version A, and then you find out at the end that Bruce Willis's character's been dead the whole time. Yeah. This twist ending. You can never watch version A again. Every time you watch yeah. it, you see the signal was there all along. Yeah. And I think this subject would be no different, and I'm sure it was the same for these other animals in that, Right now, we're in this dismissive phase, and should the Sasquatch be proven to exist, in retrospect, it will be blatantly obvious that the signal so is signals. all along, so and that people signals. will say, oh, well, look at these indigenous representations in yeah, the yeah. oral tradition, and look what the early European settlers said. And so I think there's a lot of that information, ethnozoographical information, that won't have value until discovery or recognition has occurred, which is frustrating. It's like, it's like you're flipping a coin and it's landing on its side every time that you can't say like this. Yeah, it's not one way or another. Why do you think um, now, you know, I know quite a few people engage in, in um, a few of the life sciences and career wise. I know that having the wrong opinions can be can be suicide, can be career suicide, professional suicide. But why do you think that is, especially in a in a in a, uh, a discipline? in a genre that should really be so open to new possibilities that it's actually very narrow. What do you think that is? I mean, we know that new species are discovered every year. We have all these big signals and with Bigfoot, for example, especially in North America and some other places like Australia and China specifically, you've got the footprints, for example, you know, great casts with dermal ridges and, you know, um, trackways that are almost not always as cliff knows with the london tracks but you know almost always very very difficult to replicate you know to, in, in such a, an authentic way and yet if that was something some sort of new kind of deer or some new kind of bear that we were becoming aware of and we had those level of tracks and hair and other types of things that would be a huge signal to scientists and to naturalists and biologists they'd be saying we think there's a new kind of bear. In fact, we're going to say there is a new kind of bear based upon the footprints that we've collected, hundreds of, of examples, examination of different hairs and other bits and pieces. Why can't we do that with Bigfoot, you know, to, to use a catch-all term? Why do you think that is? Oh, man. it's there. I think there's such a host of reasons. I mean, one of the things that's really interesting to me is that we do seem to have a collective human blind spot about mm. these, you know, when I, you know, I spoke with Gareth Patterson at length, you know, he was a, a wildlife researcher, essentially worked with lions and then rediscovered a population mm. of elephants, those most southerly elephants in, in Africa. Oh, wow. That the, the population had dwindled to such that most people were only seeing a single old female individual. They called her the matriarch wow. and it, it was assumed for a very long time that was the last of the southern elephants. And Gareth with, you know, not quite single-handedly, but he definitely was the tip of the spear, spearheaded mm. his, rediscovered an entire population. And along the way, saw these unknown hominoids upright, you know. Wow. So he, he saw he, them? Oh, yeah. He saw he had six sightings over a period of 18 years of field research. He wrote a great book yes. about it called uh, Beyond the Secret Elephants. He wrote a book about oh. the rediscovery of the elephants called The Secret Elephants. Okay. And then uh, in 2020, released a book called Beyond the Secret Elephants. 
Um, I interviewed him on our podcast on Apes Among Us okay. um, in April of 2020, and then uh, Cliff and Bobo have had him on. He's a fascinating guy, but you know, he's describing not only the indigenous people there and their, you know, he met many witnesses. He accumulated uh, stories from other witnesses and direct witnesses, and they all had the same sort of blind spot. And then where he lives is a, is a tourist town. It's called Nizna. It's right on the coast, like the very uh-huh. central yeah, coast, bottom of yeah. Africa. Seems like this idyllic place. I think the winters are like 68 degrees and the summers are in the low 80s. And so it's just this really beautiful coastal mountains and, and yeah. uh, Thaneboss forest and then jungle forest. But anyway, so to talk to him about people's response to these things mm. and how they're unwilling to, you know, like people always wonder about cover ups or suppressions. And it's like, yeah, there's a suppression and it's at the individual level. It's mm. not some institutional level. It's like people who make contact with these things are just so unwilling to discuss it. And maybe mm. that is because it's been stigmatized, but then you would think, well, yeah. where's the stigma of something like that in South Africa? Or in, you know, I have a friend who's a carnivore biologist who um, worked in Southeast Asia for a long time. He accumulated a lot of, you know, essentially like Yeren or Yeti stories mm. from people and described the same phenomenon from those people in terms of like this mental resistance. Um, I think it was Krantz, I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't remember the exact quote, but Krantz said, you know, um, it's not the elusive Sasquatch that hides so well, but the human response that keeps them, mm. scared, you know, and so there's that element going on. I think even in the minds of scientists, no matter how curious or interested they are. Yeah. And we also have this problem. You know, we, we run compression algorithms in our minds all the time to simplify the world into like some unidimensional oh. analysis for everything. And it's almost always wrong because most things are paradoxical. You know, it's just like, is it, a biological animal or is it the production of the human mind well it could be both both occurring simultaneously feeding each other you know and so when it comes to people tr- trying to understand something as complex as a person i mean you probably see this i i deal with this all the time it happens in in the u.s let's say with whether it's political divides or or other divides on social issues that just to bridge the gap and have a conversation is seen as a tacit endorsement of the entirety of the other person's view. Yeah. So, yes. I get asked <laughs> to speak. I get asked to speak about the subject, and it, it might be a yeah. paranormal podcast. Yeah. Or it might be at a conference where most of the speakers think that Sasquatches are like interdimensional or mm. UFO riding, shape shifting aliens. And so my perspective is always like, they're going to have this conference with or without me. Yeah. They're someone is going to speak in that spot. Now, if I'm there, I can offer my perspective, which is hopefully a grounded biological, ecological yeah. perspective that's also charitable to those interpretations saying, I understand why people think this. Here's yeah. how these could be real biological animals and still people interpret them that way. And yeah. I can't tell you how many people will be like, oh, well, so you're a paranormal guy now because you're speaking. Uh, no, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm offering my perspective. And so there's this, I think, in the science. The world is, yeah. That to to entertain or to bridge the gap with the Sasquatch, it's probably seen the same way as like, yeah. it's seen as like a tacit endorsement of all the claims and all the evidence. I think that's a good explanation. Yeah. And so it's I've better to not touch it at all mm. because, you know, we're all discriminating. We're trying to say like, here's this body of evidence and we could call it cherry picking, but it kind mm. of is. I mean, everything's cherry picking, really. Like you're trying to pull good data you're trying to pull signal from noise is that cherry picking? Mm. 
probably, but how else are we going to? Well, yeah, sure. But I mean, the same happens in regular science when they're looking for information. If, if that's the um, if that's the data they have to work with, that's what they work with. Yeah. I mean, it's just a normal thing. I remember, and I, I definitely, I, I mean, I've experienced this with a lot of witnesses with Bigfoot more than anything else, that they are reticent to put their name to it. Like, if I interview somebody who thinks they've seen Nessie, it's almost like a badge of honor. You know, <laughs> they'll say, mm. I saw Nessie. And I'll say, oh, really? Tell me about your Nessie sighting. They're really excited. And because it has a sort of a fun, you know, tabloid newspaper badge of, yes, great. I came to Loch Ness and I saw Nessie sort of feel about it. But with Bigfoot, you know, nobody, nothing good happens to you when you report a Bigfoot sighting. You don't get that promotion you're after the next year because you went public with your Bigfoot sighting. They think, actually, no, no, not Matt. He believes in Bigfoot. And let's look at this other guy. You know, and there's there's no rewards for it. I remember the one time I met Jeff Melgram, him saying that he was lucky that he had tenure already when he came out and started studying Bigfoot because they tried to get rid of him. Mm. Michael do tried to get rid of him. And that's like, wow, it's just a genre. It's just an idea, even from that perspective. And he is an anthropologist. It seems to fit perfectly with his mode of study. You know, and also I, I forget what the the um what the name for that particular science is, but you know, the, the studying the morphology of feet, mm. um, um, and that speciality within that as well. I know there's a word for that. Um, and I thought, wow, this is really, you know, this is really something. And as you dig in more and more, and I I work in healthcare now, I have well, I have done for the last twelve years, uh, and you realise. You meet doctors, you meet researchers and specialists, and there are certain areas where you just are not allowed to go into. If you do, you better be established already, or you better have something that's going to work out really quickly with mm-hmm. your experiment or your science, and that people will want, because if it's not that, you're going to be canned, and you'll never get back in. And that's that's interesting to me. I'm also then conflicted seeing the the way that we're left with just us crypto guys you know citizen scientists to make these discoveries and you know so far in the world of animal discovery i don't know one that has been discovered by a cryptozoologist i think that in fact there was a slug a new slug in europe discovered recently by citizen scientists that's the list i think that's the entire list and you know what are we going to do if we can't get these guys on board in a significant way, in like in a realistic way, we need the scientific community to come on board and, and do that work. If it is a real animal and if it is something that's outside of culture and um, and uh, superstition and myths and folklore, then we need them, especially with the things people talk about in the world about ecology and environments crumbling and being destroyed. They may be gone by the time we've even had a chance to look for them. I think there's a, a twofold problem there. There, There is the problem of whether we say like, you know, science or academia having a difficult time looking at it, but there's also the problem of the proponents and what they offer as evidence, you know, because there there is sort of a rule set in place, you know, a standard of evidence that a lot of people are not willing to play by those rules. Yeah. So I've definitely seen on the scientific side or the academic side or the skepticals or whatever, you know, the two sides of the divide, you know, that circular thinking of like, um, 
would you take a look at this? We think it might be associated with the Sasquatch. Mm. Oh, well, it can't be because there is no Sasquatch. Yeah. But what would convince you that there is? Oh, I'd need to see evidence. Well, what about this? Well, that can't be evidence because there is no Sasquatch. Yeah. <laughs> you that there might be. Oh, I'd need to see evidence. Well, what about this? Well, that can't be evidence. Yeah. Um, but that. again, the other side of that coin is what is being held up as evidence. Yeah. So yeah. It does require a lens, you know, like Jeff Meldrum or Grover Krantz or these certain mm. scientists, anatomists, anthropologists, biologists who have the right interpretive schema to look at those forms of evidence and analyze it and offer their opinions are not going to translate to, you know, a microbiologist who mm. studies, you know, bacteria or whatever, or not going to translate to, um, you know, a, a chemist on and on and on. So th there are these people in their relevant disciplines that can see certain evidence through the right lenses, but in terms of like the overarching structure, yeah. let's say the establishment or whatever people want to call it, it's like, well, no, the, the standard would be, a body or a diagnostic portion of a specimen mm, and mm. no one's willing to to play that game and so it's like you're you're right you know, yeah in the in the void of scientific involvement the void gets filled by amateurs you know mm. with i'm an amateur like most of us i have no business you know i don't have a degree i grew up playing music i uh, still play music you know like these other passions um uh, you know, I'm autodidactic in terms of I read a lot about biology, anthropology, et cetera, et cetera. But, mm. you know, I, there's a lot of people who should be looking into this other than me, you know, based on their qualifications and their disciplines. But I, I also understand that, like, well, if I wanted to sway those people, there's a certain category of evidence I would need. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily they want to play the game, but they don't want to play by the rules. Yeah. Uh, you know, I always had this commitment to. You know, if you look at categories of evidence, like the, the best pieces of visual evidence, which are still not proof, they're hotly debated. The Patterson mm -hmm. film, on and on. The best footprint data, still not proof, hotly debated, hoaxed, real, et cetera, on and on. It's like, well, if you look at the, like the detail, the the resolution, you know, the clarity, the, the quality, let's say, like a qualitative distinction yeah. of the best in its category, photographs, tracks, vocalization recordings, on and on and on. It's like, well, if what I find or collect isn't as good or better than that, mm. then there's no point in trying to offer it publicly or defend it because yeah. if these best in their category thus far haven't done it. I would be, how should I define my expectations that anything of lesser quality would have any impact? Now, mm. within my circles, you know, because we've created our own little Bigfoot yeah. structure where we ooh and ah over, you know, certain bits of tantalizing evidence, but. I, I should have no expectation that I could take it out of that circle into mm. academia or science and that they would do anything other than laugh. And so it is this twofold thing. Like it's it's easy for proponents to lay all the blame at like science won't pay yeah. attention to us. But they're also not, you know, that's like science is playing basketball and proponents are showing up with baseball bats. And it's like you're playing yeah. the wrong. You're and not they're actually cool. very clear about what they expect as a as a form of evidence. And sure. it's not like we don't know that. And I think that's where the believing comes into play sometimes for people. And and maybe when you believe something, there's a faith aspect to that that expects that other people will feel the faith that you feel when you express, you know, this this, exactly. this passion that you have. That's something I'm familiar with. And I think it's uh yeah, why should we expect that from them? I yeah, I over I started as a real firm believer as somebody who wanted to prove the genre 
and uh, in with all cryptids. And I've actually come to this position now where I think it's not right for me to believe it. It's not right for me to believe it because then I'm putting I'm putting a sort of a faith aspect into the game until it's proven. I don't have that right. So if a witness gives me a report, I believe the witness at point. That's that's those are the rules. Maybe there might be some red flags about the sighting. That means I can't use it. But I thank you for your sighting. I believe you. That's great. Thanks for showing trust in me. However, from an evidential point of view, I'm like, no, I don't believe any of this anymore until it comes to that point where it can be evidenced in a scientific way. And up until that point, you know, I'm a hopeful skeptic. Somebody who dreamlike, you know, wants to wants to see these in these wonderful explorations and adventures um, give fruit. You know, I believe that all of those animals we discovered in the the 19th century and, and thereon, that wasn't the end of it. You know, we just lost interest. It's time to, to get back out there and and find them again. Oh, yeah. Well, I think that's a great point. You know, one of the things I've, I've said for years and my a lot of my closest researcher friends get so offended at this. So I'm going to aim this at them uh, <laughs> because you know, it is often painted as like this battle between evidence and belief. But we're all believers in various things. And it is it is faith all the way down. Now, you could substitute the word faith for trust. Um, but I think faith digs the knife a little more. And so I yeah. tend to use that one. But with anything, I mean, think of all the things that we take for, you know, we, we all have dogmas, all of us, you know, like this accepted set of facts that we did build upon. Yeah. It's like, well, we could look at all the sciences and go like, well, have you run those experiences and observed mm. them? No, do you have faith or trust in the validity of those? I mean, there, our whole world is structured that way. You know, I don't think too deeply about how my phone was designed. I trust that it works. It gives me the feedback I want, et cetera. Um, but when it comes to the Sasquatch thing, like it's along those same lines in that, well, you know, if you're dealing with witnesses, let's say, and you do your own investigation into their character and it seems to be unimpeachable well you're having faith in your own investigative skills you're having faith in in the validity of what you find you have faith in your ability to detect truth from lies even when it comes to evidence it's like well i i'm using my trust of the interpretive skills of a Krantz, a binnernagel a meldrum you know other scientists and so it's like i'm still i'm not an anatomist you know i've i've read as much as i can to have like again like sort of an autodidactic grasp but it could be a very loose grasp because mm. I don't know what I don't know. And so I could have many errors in my thinking and undoubtedly many gaps in my thinking. So it's all these levels of faith, like, no, this evidence, we have evidence. Yeah, but it's like you're relying on, you're trusting this person's expertise and their analysis. Also, like with any given track, you know, you could say, look how beautiful this is. Oh, my God. Oh, it's amazing. It was found in the middle of nowhere. It's like, mm. was it? Do you know that? Were you there? Mm. So you have faith that this person who collected this evidence found it where they said they found it in the context where they said they found it and didn't sculpt it over a week in, you know, a sandbox. Stick in science, a for example. Room. Yeah, thick science. I mean, it, it, people always think about fake tracks in terms of stompers mm. that someone put on stompers. And it's like, why, why couldn't someone just build a dirt box in their kitchen mm. and labor over it for weeks and make the perfect? So but when someone says this track was found and blah, 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 in 1982, on and on. It's like, well, we're trusting that. And so yeah. I, I think it's okay to admit that. 
what I see a lot of proponents doing is I'm not a believer. I don't I don't play in the realm of belief. I'm a science. It's like, no, we are all believers. We're all subjective. We are subjects. We're not objects. The normative way of human thinking is subjective. Magical thinking is the normative way of human thinking. That's why it's prevalent yeah. around the world. Science is so new. If we weren't magical thinkers, we wouldn't need science. We would just think that way anyway. We wouldn't have to create a process <laughs> and a method to figure things out and strip away the subjective to find okay. out what's left. And so I, I think it's I think more people should be willing to just accept that and admit that that like That's very you'll never find a human there's yeah. no human being immune to confirmation bias. None. You know? Oh no, I mean that's I I think it was a disclaimer in the forward that, that I wrote to introduction to one of my books was to the best of my ability um you know hopelessly so i've tried to, to escape my confirmation bias but you know the, the actual process of trying to do that is impossible everybody knows that i know what my biases are and just knowing them perhaps can help you absolutely you escape from them now i think it's you know it's an interesting thing and there is something to it i think there is something very very significant to this Phenomena, for sure, absolutely. I've met too many people who've had terrifying experiences, actually. Some of them that they can't see, and for many of them, they had no skin in the game previously. And that says something to me that at least whatever it is they're seeing was significant enough to, you know, to change the um, the outlook of their life philosophically, at least about the way the world is and what it's comprised of. That's an interesting thing, Matt. I think we should wrap up here. But what, what are you, what's your what's your view? What's the way forward for Sasquatch research? What, what do you think are the the major components to um to get some success in this in this realm? Certainly. Well, again, I, I think that acknowledgement of belief, faith, or trust, etc., is important because you know, do I believe Sasquatches are real flesh and blood animals? I do. Like I'm convinced. Uh, but it shouldn't matter what I believe. It should matter what I can demonstrate. And so I, I have to not devote too much energy into trying to promote, uh, you know, like in a conversation, people also like convince me. It's like, well, I can convince you that the pursuit is valid, yeah. that you know, the phenomenon exists mm. because the claims exist and the the physical items exist. Now, I can't demonstrate what causes them. Yeah. Whether it's solely psychological or where there is an animal. So you could have a conversation that convinces people that the pursuit is actually valid and or necessary and the benefits that would come from answering that particular question. But, you know, I think what what many people want or whether they explicitly state it or they or it's implicit in their actions and behaviors, they want it to be validated or recognized. And again, they're totally unwilling to to play by the rules of science, which is fine because. Mm. If you just want to satisfy your own curiosity, great, because you yeah, get to sure. determine, you get to set the bar, you know, for you, you know, to, to the individual who wants to satisfy their own curiosity. If you want to think that every divot in the ground is a Sasquatch track, knock yourself out and you will satisfy that curiosity and you'll come away with this knowledge. You know, the second that you want to prove it to other people, like I want to convince my friend here that mm -hmm. these things are real. Well, now you're playing by their standard. To them, a divot in the ground might not be a tractor. That's just a divot in the ground. You know, what are you talking about? And so when it comes to science or the establishment or academia or whatever, you know, whatever the the man, as people see it, you know, this big looming thing, it's almost like they treat it like a 
this big massive idol, you know, this big deity that's like, please notice me, please notice me, but they're not willing to play by its rules. You know, they ah. want to be validated by science. They want to be looked at as scientists. And yet when, when science says, here's what we require, people go, not going to do it. You should yeah. accept. It's kind of like, you know, someone saying. Because I know. I've seen it. I know. You should accept what I'm saying. I know. Exactly. Are you saying I'm lying? So well, I think like the path yeah. forward for people is like, anyone who's involved in this should realistically define their expectations. Yeah. Like I said, you want to prove okay. it to yourself. You want to prove it to other people. You want to prove it to the world. Because defining okay. your expectation, you have to conduct yourself a certain way. Yeah. That determines like, well, what are you going to do? So if you're trying to, you know, film or photograph one, it's like, well, you have to synthesize all these observations of people who claim to see one and try to replicate those in some way that would allow you to film or photograph one. And, you know, if you fail to do that, then, you know, there's so many people that go out and, you know, maybe they're wearing bright colors and smoking a pack of cigarettes and making a bunch of noise and sitting out in the woods and <clears throat> hacking and coughing and, well, I didn't see no Bigfoot. They must not be here. It's like, well, maybe you failed to conduct the experiment correctly. You know, if I was hunting trying to get photographs of tigers, I would probably have to be concealed and camouflaged and be in place for a long time to have that once in a lifetime rare sighting and get a photograph. And so I think that the problem that I see is that proponents don't thoroughly define their expectations yeah. and don't conduct themselves according to their stated expectations. Okay. You know, I want to prove it's real. Well, you're not going to do that from casting more tracks or yeah, red yeah. circles on photographs of shadow oh, or you know uh, another recording of some distant howl that's barely audible it's mm -hmm. like we've, we've got to move past that but i understand that what they're really doing is try to satisfy their own curiosity but present it in yeah. a way that they think will make the the deity of the establishment smile upon them favorably you know kind so of kudos as well i think in the community you know oh, what a great recording what a great clip what a great right circle um mm -hmm. Those seem to get the most hits out of everything, actually, those red circles. I once posted a picture. I just stood on one side of the river near my house. I photographed a bunch of trees on the other side. And I said, in this picture, I posted it on some website. I can't remember, some page. Uh, two dogmen and a juvenile Bigfoot on the right. And put the circles there. Everybody was like, wow, amazing. Oh, awesome pic. Yeah, keep up the good work. And I was like, wow. Absolutely, wow. That's mm -hmm. insane. There's clearly nothing here. And yet that's that that gets me the most hits I get out of anything. <laughs> that's wild. I mean, yeah. that's what we do. We look at the, the night sky and we see gods yeah. and bears and, you know, the constellations. And yeah. you know, we make sense out of yeah. out of noise. And so it's like I, I understand why people do that. Um, they live in a more exciting world than I do because I just I, see me too. shadows. Yeah. I'd like, yeah, oh, love to, to be that. that um, positive even you know and hopeful that would be fantastic you know and i think that's you know that's one of the great things but once again as you pointed out you know it depends what the reasons are for people's interest in the genre if they're philosophical if they're spiritual i often thought there was this like the lack of corporate religion in our societies in the west these days might actually have left many gaps and when i was looking at the little people in one of my books all of these fairy farms and fairy whispers and toys that are springing up all over the place and these great channels that are very so ASMR calming. There was a, a British guy who was ran an amazing one with clearly, you know, CGI fairies in it. But mm -hmm. Pete Irwin Sanders, I think his name was, 
people loved it. They loved him. They loved the channel. They believed it because they liked him. They wanted that experience to happen. And yet, you know, I'm walking up to like tiny little houses on some farm in Ireland somewhere for, and paying a couple of hundred pounds for the pleasure to be told that fairies live there and getting something out of it. And I think that's where we are. Corporate religion has collapsed and we're trying to fill that void because there is a void, you know, that says, explains stuff, you know, give my life meaning. Oh, Sometimes yeah. The Sasquatch fills that void as well for some people. Oh, I think. I think anything does, but this for sure, because, yeah. you know, like the proponents sort of have the, the pursuit is rested upon like a particular fantasy myth, whatever you want to call it, a, a narrative about like the discovery of these animals, if yeah. real, will make the world a better place. We'll give protection to them. We'll validate eyewitnesses. We'll validate the the maverick scientists who stood at the vanguard and were laughed at on and on. And so it's sort of like this. Yeah. There's a bit of myth making there that like this will have some deeper meaning for the greater good of humanity and the, the yeah. Sasquatch, the animals, the planet, et cetera. I think skeptics are embedded in the same pursuit of meaning like eradicating this particular Mm. variant of pseudoscience will be a victory for the truth and we will eliminate the snake oil salesman and the con men and the cult of bigfootery and so they're still both they're like whether they make it explicit or not i think both sides think that they're engaged in a moral pursuit that's all for like the greater good Uh so they just have different variations of what the greater good is and so that's very interesting have any pursuit without somewhere it being nested with inside like a moral like it's an ethical pursuit and people just don't acknowledge that they say no it's an entirely an intellectual it's hardwired it's hardwired that explains actually sometimes some of the skeptic explanations i've heard which are even more far out than than the what's being proposed there's one for nessie for example that was proposed by a well-known skeptic two two very crazy ones one was that nessie is a giant a uh, mud skipper with a pleasure saw like head and neck as a lure. It's a lure to attract prey. And my question was, how big are the fish it's trying to attract? Yeah. This thing is 40 feet long. <laughs> and uh, the other one was Ghosts of Dinosaurs, written by a very, very good author that's uh, the people are seeing ghosts, replays of dinosaurs from the old days. And I thought, wow. And that got such a big thumbs up as opposed to some escapee from a prehistoric era that could be living on into our times. That was mad. But the ghost thing, that was A-OK. I thought, wow, you know, like literally, sometimes the skeptic explanation is much further away from any plausibility than, you know, what we're proposing on this side. And I, I think we should we should leave it there. I do want people to find you, though. So if people want to get involved in your work or they want to find out what you're up to, where can they go? Certainly. Well, you know, I'm a, a member of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy, uh, so you could find them at woodape.org. There's a lot of good information there. Mm-hmm. Um, I produce and edit Cliff and Bobo's podcast, Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo, which is a lot of fun. So I'm uh, hopefully people enjoy that and check it out. And then if you wanted to reach out to me, you can find me online at uh, mattpruittonline.com. Awesome. Awesome. Matt, it's been a wonderful chat. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks for having me. This has been a lot of fun. I really, really appreciate it. Take care.